Good morning, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Wherever you're watching, we're very glad you joined us. My name is Dominic Kazuti. Thank you. Welcome to Colorado Inside Out. It again is our edition from uh, on location, but we're so glad that you joined us. Let's get started on with a quick take on last Sunday's protest to reopen the state held to the state capitol. Hundreds of protesters showed up, and some of the counter protesters actually made headlines as well. Let's go to Patty Calhoun for Westward for your first take. Patty, what do you think? We had uh, a lot of folks running around the state capitol, and we also had uh, uh, at least f- uh, photographs of uh, different folks who were trying to stop some of that as uh, uh, healthcare workers. What do you think? Well, what you th- I think is what we're seeing in a lot of places. Everyone is now going to their corner, and unfortunately, one of those corners does not observe social distancing or masks, so that is going to be a concern. That people are getting tired, they're getting frustrated, isn't a surprise that two people who work in the healthcare industry, my reporter talked to them, did stand out and try to stop protesters or at least talk to them. That was a surprise, and it did go around the world. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, do you think we're going to see more protests like this, or is there going to be enough? And we're about to talk about the details that's going on here in Colorado, but are there enough movements now that we'll, we'll see less of protests like this? No, I, I think we'll continue uh, to see more. You know, there are some people who have stay-at-home, white-collar jobs, and they sneer that the protesters just want to eat at the Cheesecake Factory. Well, those snobs ought to check their privilege. People are protesting the destruction of their jobs, and not everybody who lost a job is eligible for unemployment benefits. Uh, But that said, I never support people blocking traffic, regardless of whether they have some racial issue or a doomsday ecology prophecy or anything else. Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor at 5280. Thanks for being a part of the panel today. Uh, Natasha, do you think that uh, the protests, whether the initial protests at the state capitol or the counter-protests to it that we saw from a couple of healthcare workers, uh, make a difference in general in the public opinion in Colorado? Well, I think the public opinion is still being formed. One of the one of the concerns in, in the time of COVID, as reporters try to cover every angle of a story, is that it's harder and harder to do that when we're socially isolating. So while these protests are happening, what we're not seeing images of is the millions and millions of people who are staying home and, I guess, perhaps protesting in their own way. Um, so we saw those nurses on the street or the healthcare workers on the street. Um, we saw the people in front of the Capitol, but we saw less of people just sitting in their living room doing what they thought that was best. So as we look at this coverage, I think it's always important for people to understand that, that right now we may not be getting as complete of a picture as we normally would because the circumstances are so unusual. And rounding up the panel, Karen Middleton, president of Cobalt. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, What did you think of the protests, the counter-protests, really all the headlines we saw from those folks this week? We were seeing in New York around and around the country that healthcare workers who, to Dave's point, are those folks who can't just sit home and wait this out, are out there risking their lives every day. And I would hope to see more of those voices being lifted and making sure that we are really honoring the fact that the people who are showing up at the grocery stores in the long-term care facilities and in the hospitals are, are being heard and are being protected. Well, let's get to it. Governor Jared Polis announced this week that the stay at home that that the state will move to a safer at home order after the stay at home order ends statewide April 26th. Under the new order, retail stores will be allowed to open with social distancing procedures in place. 
However, earlier today on Friday, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced that he is extending his stay-at-home order until May 8th in the city and county of Denver. So, Patty, clearly we have, and this is how our government works, you have uh, localities being able to call their shots that would supersede the uh, the statewide order, and that's a good thing because they can kind of they know what's going on in their particular communities. But I feel there's probably going to be a little bit of confusion because you have different cities doing different things, uh, and folks maybe wanting to go and see what's legal in which city. How do you think this is going to roll out this week? Well, confusing is a very good way to describe it because even as we are filming this, Hancock is just finishing his press conference explaining the logic behind the move to five eight. We don't know it's all that logic, but we do know there haven't been great statistics lately on the COVID-19 deaths in Denver. So certainly there are reasons to be concerned and not lift things as early in Denver. Two hours from now, we will also hear Jared Polis giving much more of his rationale on his plan to do the safer at home order on April 27th. So we're kind of talking in a vacuum, which is not unusual on this show. What we do know is that in Colorado, and in other states like Georgia, for example, where Georgia, Georgia's governor has lifted most of the at-home rules, Atlanta is clamping down, though, because in urban areas, it often is much more dangerous. And that's, that's allowed. Counties, state, cities can do different rules than the state is doing. What I think is a little unusual is what Weld County is doing, which is it's basically lifting everything, and it's going to be a real free-for-all. So... If you want to get your hair cut, that's the county to go to. <laughs> David, you know, we, it, it is our way to kind of uh, try to hash out through some of these different things that might be confusing some of our viewers. I know it's confusing for me. I have a hairstylist that lives in Douglas County, but she works officially in Denver County. Uh, is it okay for me to get a haircut if I if, if she has a, a chair at her, at her uh, home office? Or do I need to wait? Or does her license... Uh, mean that she can't really operate as a hairstylist until uh, Denver is free. I, it's it's an honest question. I'm not expecting you to answer every particular legal uh, uh, variance here, but how do you think people can be able to flesh this out? Well, isn't it ridiculous that a, a hairstylist might have to have some license that limits you to a single location? You know, as if they're a gun store. You know, and you you know, a gun dealer can't like sell out of a. Uh, a van at a, at a, you know, at a parking lot. Uh, and I agree with that rule, but uh, hairstylists ought to be able to style uh, wherever they can. My, my dad actually in the 1970s uh, led the, the push for a uh, sunset law to get rid of uh, excessive occupational regulations, which just benefit incumbents and, and harm consumers and, and small businesses. And, and this is a, another uh, example of that, but in, Overall, we, we have a large and diverse state, and what might be appropriate for Denver is not appropriate for, say, Yuma County, because Denver's had this longstanding policy of jamming people into apartment buildings where they share a common air circulation system. That's a good way to spread infectious disease, to make everybody breathe the same recirculated air. And, of course, Mayor Hancock's been working as hard as he possibly can to try to prevent people from being able to use cars uh, for transit and force them into mass transit uh, where infections spread. You know, in uh, New York City, the subway has turned out to be the key driver 
uh, of uh, spread of in, in infections. Mayor de Blasio in New York City said you can't get you can't get uh, coronavirus on the subway, uh, you know, which is sort of like my mother-in-law's view that you can't get uh, an infectious disease by drinking communion wine. Uh, but at least my, my mother-in-law has a, a, a theory of, of active miracles, which could explain it. Uh, you know, the theory that you can't get it, uh, de Blasio's uh, got no such excuse. The, the CCP virus is going to be with us for a long time. The immunity that people might get from having an, an infection or even from a vaccine doesn't necessarily persist uh, for years. It might only last a, a few months. Um, not, not all vaccines are like the measles vaccine where it's lifetime immunity. And uh, people can't identify any kind of respiratory pandemic that hasn't had a second wave. So we're going to be dealing with this, uh, having to do social distancing and uh, masks and gloves and all those things uh, for a long time. But we've got to reopen the economy because people not being able to get their cancer treatment at hospitals or being unemployed is also really, really harmful for public health. Natasha, clearly there's a lot to unpack here, but uh, it seems to me that there's going to be a whole lot of... uh education amongst the people in Metro Denver. I mean, there's, there's cities, there's, so that you can say, okay, here, this is what my, my mayor or city council said, but there's a lot of unincorporated parts of the Metro area. There's also places like I live in Highlands Ranch. Well, there, we're technically still part of a County. So I guess I go to that part, but it's not as if uh, I would report to a mayor of Highlands Ranch. There isn't one. So um, is it going to be difficult for people to hash out the differences in this mixture of statewide orders and city and countywide orders. Absolutely. And one of the important things with all of these announcements is that the the emphasis is still on stay home if you can. So while I desperately need a haircut, I'm not going to get one. I'm going to wait. And I don't know, perhaps people who've been growing their hair um, as long as I have, which is probably longer than it's ever been, um, perhaps I can donate that to a charity when it is finally time for a safe, uh, uncomfortable haircut. Absolutely. I am concerned about our business community. I'm concerned about our workers. At 5280, we spend a a lot of time covering um, the local businesses that really make our community what it is. So to see them struggling and hurting is, is difficult at this moment. But um, I think the theme that's starting to emerge here is that the, the state's going to say one thing. Um, cities, municipalities, counties, other jurisdictions may say another thing. But ultimately, this really comes down to an individual decision. Businesses are going to make decisions about what they feel safe and comfortable for. With um, They'll make decisions um, for their employees. And then the individual Individuals are going to make decisions. So it's one thing for it, and, and it provides a framework once the state or the city says, hey, here are the guidelines. But individually, people are going to have to make some very tough decisions about what they feel comfortable with. Um, and we're hearing that throughout the community. There's some really interesting um, restaurant owners are talking about their decisions either to be open or to be closed. And as you hear them discuss their rationale, it, it makes so much sense, which sh- shows to all of us that there is no one answer for what to do next. Um, people should just be safe and be, be respectful of the fact that they might make decisions that are a little bit different than other people. Karen, do you think it'd be smart for uh, both Governor Polis and Mayor Hancock to uh, perhaps even have, uh, whether it's a joint or a related uh, press conference, to maybe clear up some of the confusion that might be caused, especially talking about the Denver area, which is enormous, uh, with a lot of different people wondering uh, you know, which, which way uh, do I need to go? Is more communication called for? 
I don't know whether they should do a press conference, but I want to point out the example of Tri-County Health, which includes uh, Douglas County, where it sounds like you are. Um, Tri-County Health just overnight shut down a Walmart because they were not practicing uh, distancing. They did not have masks. And this gets to two things. One, I'd like to see healthcare professional professionals leading these policy conversations, which we see in some states and we see sometimes at the White House and most of the time not. Um, and I believe that both Hancock and Polis are talking to their healthcare professionals. And regulation in this case matters because if you own a business and you are not giving people masks or you're shaming people who wear masks or you don't have plexiglass, you have an immediate safety concern. So my neighbors who went to that Walmart for toilet paper and milk this last week did not realize that they were walking into a place where three people have now died of um, COVID-19. So I think there's got to be a real balance. And what I would hope to see is that politicians are not health experts. If they're good, they should talk to health professionals first and let the health professionals lead. Um, and I, I want to point out Tri-County Health led by finding out about this on Tuesday and taking action by Thursday. Um, and we're going to have to see more of that in all of the counties that you're talking about. Um, I really worry about business owners being asked to understand how to control infectious disease as they reopen, particularly because of the cost cutting that they're going to have to do. Let's get to our second topic. This week, a Denver district judge ruled that because of restrictions related to COVID-19, Michelle Ferrigno Warren, a candidate for U.S. Senate, could be placed in the Democratic primary ballot, despite only collecting half the number of signatures needed. Candidate Lorena Garcia has announced that she will also petition the court to be allowed to be on the ballot, despite falling short on signatures. Uh, David, this is an entirely new situation for us to encounter. We're, we're often talking about the primary ballot and signatures and who qualified, who didn't qualify, and the state assemblies and everything else. That's kind of out the window right now. But uh, the reduction of the need for signatures for a primary ballot, this is getting right to the heart of our democracy. What did you think of this decision? Well, the, the standard for judging the validity of election petitions is substantial compliance, and that is supposed to be liberally construed. The candidate needed 10,500 valid signatures and only had 5,383. She also needed a certain number of signatures in each of the seven congressional districts, got to that level in only one, and was well under halfway in four districts. The statute that governs this is quite clear that a petition without enough valid signatures cannot be allowed to be put on the ballot. And Colorado Supreme Court precedent on this point is just as clear as the district judge pointed out. But surprisingly, Secretary of State Griswold didn't argue for enforcement of the statute or the precedent. She agreed with the candidate that an insufficient number of signatures was okay as long as the candidate had substantial support according to a formula created by the Secretary of State. But the judge didn't use that formula, which was based on extrapolating from the daily number of signatures that the candidate had gathered so far. As the court pointed out, the candidate had a plan to use paid, signature, paid petition gather, signature gathers to make a big push for lots of signatures in the final two weeks of the uh, signature gathering period. She couldn't have done that earlier because as the court she said, and the court pointed out, and was uncontested, Bloomberg and Hickenlooper had hoovered up all the uh, paid signature gatherers by paying them above market rates. So in the court's view, because the candidate had over half the necessary signatures, that was substantial enough. Um, as, as Judge Bauman said, this is a challenging and unusual case. 
it's the first instance I've heard of where the Colorado Secretary of State and the Colorado Attorney General could clearly win based on statute and precedent, but chose not to make winning arguments. Uh, Natasha, clearly, uh, we're, we're kind of, in, we're still going to be living the upside down for a while. And that includes an election year, which just magnifies it, but it kind of feels like it, well, it's either it's okay for everybody or it's not okay for everybody. It, it's, it's, it's weird to have a gray area here. How do you see this decision? <laughs> well, yes. in an election year where we like to have decisions made and know what the process is, having gray area is, it feels a, a bit uncomfortable. However, that's the world that we live in today. And it's the world we're going to continue to live in as this election cycle moves forward. Um, I think that's, you know, the courts are going to decide who ends up on this ballot. Um, and that final decision is going to be coming out in early May. The primary itself is going to be June 30th. So those are, those are dates that people should look forward to. Between now and then, one of the things I'm interested in is how the candidates will engage with their communities. So um, that might be through debates, but other um, means, whether that's social media um, or or other possibilities, newsletters to get out to voters, because whatever things they've said in the past weeks, while they may still be relevant, are completely different in a COVID-19 world. Um, I mean, I know for 5280, we spoke with all the candidates last fall. um, And the questions that we asked were important. Their answers were interesting. Um, And when you put the lens of COVID-19 on it, it's a totally different environment. I think people are really going to want some answers on what the Senate Senate candidates would do to support Colorado's interests in Washington. And I hope that all of the candidates, whoever ends up on the ballot, will address that and hopefully in some debate formats as well. Karen, do you think we're going to see a, a pretty expanded Democratic U.S. Senate primary ballot uh, for uh, the end of June? It's very frustrating to me. Uh, look, I'm someone who led a national organization to get more women on the ballot running for office. But if I were Alice Madden or any of the candidates who were on the ballot ages ago, see someone in the last hour have this virus allow them to access the ballot with legally a lot less than uh, than the benchmark, um, just really feels unfair. And it seems to me that a, a crowded ballot with more um, election administration and the floodgates could be opened by this decision. Um, I'm I'm distressed by it, and I think the rules should be fair for everyone. Um, and the, those benchmarks are there for a reason. You know, when uh, when party officials are trying to work with candidates, they really look for certain benchmarks, signature gathering, fundraising, public support. How about you know their name? Um, and there are other candidates who I think have been working a lot harder, who were a lot more visible and who've been in and out of that race. And um, I'm, I'm not I don't think it was a good decision, and I'm hoping that we see some leveling out. Um, I think blaming the the virus is a March issue, right? These folks were out for a while. So uh, to be be continued, I think. Well, Patty, it's certainly to be continued. And it's it's not like anything's at stake. It's just the U.S. Senate and uh, probably a pivotal seat that could, you know, really uh, mark uh, how everything's going to go under federal government. So there's really not a whole lot here to us to worry about. I'm being facetious, everybody. Uh, clearly, there's a lot working uh, working on this. Uh, Patty, are we looking at more lawsuits and probably a bigger ballot ahead? Well, certainly more lawsuits. Do we have time to have a bigger ballot by June 30th? That's a little trickier to know, especially because of the all-mail election, which Colorado has, which 
Other states are going to probably follow. Hello, Wisconsin, with what, 23 people now with COVID-19 from uh, because they voted. This is so messy. Think about a year ago. We still had John Hickenlooper running not for Senate, but for president. We had a cast of characters jumping in to the Senate race. And as Karen noted, many of them really, really impressive candidates. You can see Alice Madden would be a great U.S. senator. And now for one who hadn't, just how hard she worked to get those signatures is tough to tell. Because also, as Karen pointed out, she had some time to just one, maybe be able to get on the ballot with Hickenlooper, who did petition on, with Romanoff, who was at the county assembly, uh, the state assembly last week, got 85% of the support. To have one person be able to get in and none of those others is really troubling. Well, I tell you what, let's get a quick take on this last one. We're going to have kind of uh, just a short take on this. Some state and county officials on the Western Slope are not happy with the Federal Bureau of Land Management's new resource plan for the Uncompahgre planning area, which includes Delta, Gunnison, Mesa, Montrose, Uray, and San Miguel counties. Elected officials and community groups had worked with the federal government on draft proposals for nearly a decade, but some say the federal government's final plan does not reflect this work. Uh, Natasha, we'll start with you. A quick take on this one. A lot of issues going on in the Western Slope and clearly developments to come. Yeah, I can imagine that this felt like a socially distanced slap on the face for some of these community members who've worked for a very long time to put their input into to, to this topic. Interestingly enough, much like the other topics we've already discussed today, once you put the lens of COVID-19 on it, it changes. You know, as oil and gas extraction, we spent a lot of time last year talking about um, perceived threats to that industry and things that would really cripple it. And it turns out this pesky little virus is the one thing that is really cratered oil prices. Um, so it'll be interesting if they were writing that report now rather than coming out with a plan now, um, how that might have impacted um, their final decisions. But understandably, yes, um, I can I can see why the Western Slope feels frustrated or some members feel frustrated that their input wasn't taken. And at the same time, I don't think these, these plans ever roll out to um, really loud applause. There's always complications. Karen, your quick take on this issue that's a big issue for our friends on the Western Slope. Well, look, the BLM um, move is already a disaster. And the other thing that came out in the last week was a GAO report demonstrating that they mishandled the move, that they had not followed what the staff did. So not only did they issue a plan, um, issue this plan upsetting all of that great work, but it turns out they weren't listening to most of the employees of the BLM through this entire process. So I think shining the flashlight, taking a closer look at the GAO report, and really um, and stepping up some oversight, um, even during this time. I'll also point out that lease prices will drop, which means these regulations will allow them to do a lot more the next time we have an uptick. And I think that's really um, very concerning to folks who want to protect the air, land, and water. Patty, your quick take on the issue that's certainly growing at the, in the Western Slope. Well, happy 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which started April 22nd, 1970. It's not just what we're seeing on the Western Slope. We're hearing about drilling that's going to be near the Grand Canyon. We're hearing about the Supreme Court coming out saying the EPA is misinterpreting the Clean Water Act. So there are a lot of things we're going to want to pay attention to if and when we get out of this coronavirus crisis. David, wrap it up for us. There are six counties involved. One board of county commissioners, Gunnison County, filed protests. The Bureau's record of decision is 504 pages, and they've got another 71-page document explaining their 
response to the protests. They did modify the plan in response to a letter from Governor Polis last year. Uh, and so they enhanced protections for big game and for sage grouse. These are federal lands. In 2008 and 2012, the guy who won the election worked very hard to suppress all oil and gas development on federal land. Then the 2016 election had a different result in favor of energy self-sufficiency for the United States. For decades, people I know have been urging that much of the federal land in Western states be returned to the states. This was blocked by leftist interest groups that wanted to keep federal control. They got their way, and so now the federal government decides how to manage federal lands. If they'd returned it to the states, we might have five counties one way, Gunnison County going the other way, and local decision-making being made. But they're the ones who wanted federal supremacy over everything. Less than three minutes left for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. It's great that Congress passed PPP quickly, but the fact that it is going so unevenly, 85% of the Colorado restaurants that applied did not get it, whereas Ruth's Crisp, which is hardly a tiny business, got $20 million. David. The head of the World Health Organization sent out a one-word tweet this week, honesty. Well, it's good he's apparently changing his organization's longstanding policy. But until we see if the WHO actually does become honest, the U.S. should continue to deliver foreign health aid via more reputable organizations like the Red Cross. Natasha, your disgrace of the week. At a time when journalists are extremely taxed, um, as are our medical professionals, we spent a lot of time in the last 24 hours correcting um, information about potential ways to fight the COVID-19 um, pandemic, thanks to uh, speeches given by our president. And Karen, your disgrace of the week. Well, you, you got mine. I think the fact that Lysol is actually having to issue a statement about where not to use Lysol is an unnecessary distraction in a dangerous time. We have just 90 seconds left in the show. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Everyone's staying at home, doing their best to be safe, especially my mother, who's a very good sport. You're here. David. All the responsible journalists who are continuing to work in, in challenging and, and dangerous times uh, to, to bring accurate information to the public. Natasha. Thunderbirds over Denver and um, the workers who stayed in the factory for days to, to create more and more PPEs. You're here. Karen. I'm thinking about the volunteer mask makers and the healthcare workers. Um, they are really on the front lines, um, either on the volunteer side trying to help the medical professionals giving it their all in really difficult times. Well, and I just want to say something nice again about all of our viewers out there. Thank you so much for uh, chiming in. As you know, uh, in the month of April, we are taking a break from our normal fundraising programs because it's simply a time for us to be able to count on the regular programs. But we haven't stopped our fundraising. It is still, we're still trying to run a station. So if uh, you haven't, but you're in a place that you can't support the station, we hope that you would be able to do so. You can go to pbs12.org at any time and say, this is why I support this kind of television in my community so that I can count on local issues. On, on behalf of everybody at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.